Ramza Records, David Childers reteams with producer Don Dixon for Run Skeleton Run, coming May 5th. The lauded North Carolina singer-songwriter's latest effort features vocals and banjo contributions by Scott Avett of the Avett Brothers. Get your copy of David Childers' Run Skeleton Run on May 5th at RamsaRecords.com. I'm Ben Sawyer, and this is The Road to Now. The Harlem Globetrotters are one of those great parts of American culture that are beloved by nearly everyone. As a kid, the team was really special to me because it just seemed like they were everywhere. You'd, you'd hear the music, Sweet Georgia Brown. They were on TV shows. They, they had a pinball machine that I would play when I was a kid. And they, they even made it on Scooby-Doo, which was a pretty big appearance at that time, uh, to me anyway. I used to love going to see him. I think I got to see him twice uh, live when I was a kid. I ended up going later on in my 20s, and, and now I can't wait to take my, my son to go see them one day. It's one of the things that's always been a, a big deal to me. But as, as I got to be a historian, I started studying the Globetrotters and read up on the history, and immediately, just on a, on a quick read, was blown away. I mean, this is a team that today we understand as an entertainment enterprise. But, it, but, but in the middle of the 20th century, they were legitimately the greatest basketball team on earth. And their story overlaps with so many big parts of American history. The Civil Rights Movement, uh, the Cold War, the history of professional sports. Uh, even though the Globetrotters were excluded from the NBA, it, they may be the single biggest reason why the NBA did not fail. They weren't even from Harlem. And that's an interesting thing because the team was neither from Harlem nor trotting the globe when they made the name. However, one of those two things they did, they traveled all over the world and people flocked to see them. Uh, the team hosted what was the largest uh, attendance at a basketball game uh, until the last few years when they played in Germany. And so I've always appreciated this and I always love these things that allow us to get into the, the history of, of our country and the history of the world in ways that uh, you know aren't just names and dates. And, and I love these surprising stories uh, like you see with the Globetrotters. And so we're so happy today. We were able to speak with Ben Green, who wrote the book Spinning the Globe, The Rise, Fall, and Return to Greatness of the Harlem Globetrotters. And this guy, I think you're going to love this interview. And it's it's one of those things where I don't think I need to say, like with some with some episodes where where we say, well, we know you don't like, maybe you don't like NASCAR, but you'll love listening to Kyle Petty. Or maybe you don't necessarily, you don't, you're not interested in wrestling, but you know, you should definitely listen to Jim Cornette. I think you probably love the Globetrotters, or at least you have some positive connotations about them. So please enjoy our interview with Ben Green on the history of the Harlem Globetrotters. Globetrotters that we know today, the Globetrotters that we know as these great performers, we oftentimes think of them as performers before we do basketball players or athletes. But the Globetrotters of today are very different from the Globetrotters when they started in the late 1920s in South Chicago. Could you take us back to the origins of the Globetrotters and, and the reasons for uh, the team's establishment? Well, it's, it's a great story. And uh, they've had a lot of changes over the years. In fact, I think personally, I think they're in transition again right now. But really, they were just... Um, guys on the south side of Chicago who wanted to play ball and um, they 
the interesting part of the story is they were trying to get outside of Chicago. They wanted to try to make a living or try to make some money at it. So they hired this young guy, Abe Saperstein, as a promoter, and he had promoted some uh, black baseball games outside of Chicago. So he got him some bookings in Michigan and um, Wisconsin. And then the interesting part of the story is basically the the official Globetrotter story is that Abe started this team and it was his from the very beginning. What I think is much more accurate is that he was just a booking agent and then took the team in essence. Um, there was a, actually... Uh, the original team was called Tommy Brook and the Globetrotters, and it was a young guy named Tommy Brookins on the south side of Chicago um, that was playing with this team, these same guys that he'd been playing with for years. They hired Abe. Abe ended up taking the team. Tommy Brookins was also a musician, and he said, hey, I'd rather go back to Chicago and play music. So he sold Abe the uniforms, and off they went. So in their early years, in the late 20s, it was literally five black basketball players and this short little five foot three Jewish guy, Abe Saperstein, traveling around the Midwest in a Model T Ford in the middle of winter <laughs> with no heat and uh, playing 150 games a year all over the Midwest. And the interesting thing is the Harlem Globetrotters are not from Harlem. They were never from Harlem. They had nothing to do with Harlem. It was a signal, really. He He wanted to make sure that if this team showed up in your town in the middle of Iowa or Wisconsin or Minnesota and kicked the butts of your local team from the brake factory, that you knew what was coming, that you knew it was a black team, so there wouldn't be, it wouldn't be any misunderstanding. So Harlem was just like a neon sign saying, hey, here comes a black team to town. So, so is that kind of how it worked? The team would show up in a town and kind of like the early days of wrestling where they would find someone from the town to play? That's a great analogy because uh, there's a guy who probably has done more research about Globetrotter early days than anybody in terms of just hunting down um, <clears throat> box scores. And his first love was wrestling. And he said what he loved when he found out about the Globetrotters. It was that same thing that these guys just get in a car and go to another town to to play their sport. And that's exactly what they did. They traveled every little hole-in-the-wall farm town in the Midwest, and they would play all comers. They would play people from the local teacher's college, uh, pickup team, um, you know, factories had teams, civic groups had teams, pretty much any local team that was out there they would play. And they got good, too, right? I mean, this was a time when sports were segregated, and the Globetrotters were themselves, as you point out, with using the name Harlem. They were out there to prove that they were as good, if not better, than anybody, and they would play NBA teams before the NBA integrated. Well, before there was an NBA, they were playing. I mean, all they ever played was white teams, pretty much, for years and years and years in all these small towns. Um, their biggest competition really in the early days in the 30s was a team called the Harlem Winds. They really were from Harlem. Uh, they were from the Renaissance uh, Ballroom, and they were considered the best black team in the country. And really, H. Saberstein sort of had his sights on the Winds all the way along, and they kind of were playing in the same circles a lot. And eventually, they played for the first time in 1939. There was a World Pro Championship in Chicago, and the first year in 1939, the Wins 
won the tournament. They beat the best white teams, and they beat the Globetrotters. The next year, the Globetrotters came back, and they beat the Wrens, and they beat um, in the semifinals, and then they won the championship. So long before there was an NBA, the Globetrotters were playing the best black teams out there and regularly beating them. So, 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 what about the antics? When did when did it the entertainment aspect, uh, other than playing a, a basketball game, kind of enter into it? Fairly early on. I mean, in the in the first four or five years, it began to develop. And the, my sense of what happened, there were two two things going on. First of all, they were playing. I kid you not, 150 games a year. So you see, the NBA schedule is what I don't know, 72 games, something like that. Um, these guys were playing every day, twice on Sunday. They play a matinee and then they play at night. And then they get in the car and they go to the next town. And so the original impetus for the goofing around, the, the gags, the, the original impetus was to take a break. So they started these ball handling drills. And frankly, that's what that's one of the things the Rims, the Harlem Rims were known for, were these ball handling routines they would do. So the Globetrotters would be standing around, whipping the ball around their backs and back and forth, and they didn't have to run. So it was a way to take a break. <laughs> so one part was kind of selfishly to give them a break during the game, uh, just to rest some. And then the other part was because they were playing these local teams, they were much better than they were. And because they were trying to make a living doing this, they wanted to get invited back. And Abe realized if they just beat you by 20, 30 points, you're probably not going to invite them back. If you humiliate, humiliate the local team, they're not going to want you back. So what would happen is they would get like 10 points ahead. And we're talking now in an era when, you know, the scores were usually in the 30s or the 40s. There was still a jump ball after every goal was scored. There wasn't a three-point <laughs> shot. There wasn't a 24-second clock. So the games were really slow. So once they got 10 points ahead, they would put on the show. And it was a way to, A, save their legs, and B, entertain the crowd while holding down the score. So they would just kind of control the game at the end with all the showmanship, and then they'd win by four points, five points, and the crowd would go crazy, and they'd want them back the next year. And they, they weren't, uh, you know, a lot of the professional sports teams start out of, uh, or the professional sports leagues start out of, uh, you know, smaller coalitions of teams. When the NBA, NBA formed, why were the Globetrotters not considered part of it? What, did it have to do with race? Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. There was no doubt about it. In fact, um, I mean, this is, there's so many things about the Globetrotters that I didn't know until I started working on it. I mean, I was kind of like what you said when I was a kid. I saw them on TV. I saw them in person growing up one time. You know, so they were these kind of larger-than-life um, figures out there in the basketball world. But I had no idea about a lot of the, the real history. I had no idea they were the best basketball team in the world in the late 1940s. They regularly beat <clears throat> the best white basketball teams. And really, when the NBA itself actually formed, the, the Globetrotters were much more popular than the NBA, and I don't think the NBA would have survived without the Globetrotters, because what they did for years was the Globetrotters played double headers with NBA teams, and now we're talking in the early 50s, and uh, like 
I got to work on a film we did where they, we interviewed Bob Cousy and he said, you know, we'd play a doubleheader with the Globetrotters and the Globetrotters would play like their stooge team. And then everybody would leave and nobody would be left for the Celtics when the Celtics played. <laughs> and so the NBA smartened up and they started having the Globetrotters play the second game. So they would pack Madison Square Garden and the first game would be the Knicks playing the Warriors and then the Globetrotters would play the nightcap just to keep the crowd in it. So they really kept the, in the early days, they kept the NBA afloat. And then I think integration of the NBA was a direct result of the Harlem Globetrotters. The two most famous games in Globetrotter history were 1948 and 49 when they beat the Minneapolis Lakers with George Mikan, the best white team. Really, they were in 48. It was the predecessor to the actual NBA. Uh, it was called the NBL. But um, the Globetrotters beat them. Uh, 18,000 people came out to watch them in Chicago. Everybody thought it was a fluke. The next year, they beat them again and even put on the show. They just beat them badly. <laughs> and the very next year, in 1950, the NBA integrated. And I think it's pretty clear-cut when your best team gets beat two years in a row by the Globetrotters, it's time to open up the league. So every great every great uh, entertainer, every great superhero, uh, every great hero needs a foil. And the Globetrotters found theirs in the Washington Generals. So <laughs> I, I just want to tell you a, a personal story is I grew up in South Jersey. And uh, I I played uh, I played in a garage band a, a punk band when I was just out of high school and there was one club in our area that would allow us would allow punk bands to play on Sunday afternoons and it was Reds in, oh my god in in, Mar, in Margate <laughs> Red, yeah Reds in Margate New Jersey and uh, you go in there and there's all this Washington Generals uh, par- uh, paraphernalia uh, and and um, I came to learn that Red was the owner of the Washington Generals. Can you kind of tell us the history of, the, of that franchise? Right. Red Cloth, is a, he's, he may have been the best interview I did, the whole, working on the whole book. He claimed of the day he died, he was the best three-point shooter in the <laughs> world. <laughs> and, and, and could have made a pretty good case of it, I think. Um, well, what happened was, in, in, all, in the first probably 15 years of Globetrotter history, they, just, they were a barnstorming team. They just played whoever was there wherever they went. When they started going overseas, which was in 1950, actually, well, 1950 was when they went to Europe for the first time, but they started going like to Mexico in like 1948, 1949. They didn't have any teams to play. I mean, initially, they just, same thing, they would play the local teacher's college or something. But when they started really traveling, they needed to take an opposition team with them. And there were several of them. There were the Hawaiian surf riders, and there was, uh, there was another team from uh, out on the West Coast. But eventually, the Washington Generals and Red Klotz team evolved into their all-time famous, uh, you know, what later became known as the Stooge team. But when they started traveling all over Europe and South America, it was a one-stop shop. I mean, they had to bring their own court. They had to bring the opposition team. They had these portable, this portable court that they would take all over the world. Um, and so they... they created really this opposition team to travel with them. 
And also, they got to a point that nobody wanted to play them, that they were so good that nobody really wanted to challenge them. So eventually, the Washington Generals involved, evolved into a stooge team that they would tell you they play real basketball, they play straight basketball, but then they give it up for the Globetrotters to do their gags. And that, that's an amazing story because uh, of adaptation anyway. Because, you know, after the, after the NBA integrates in 1950, they lose some of their best players, right? I mean, a lot of people don't remember, but Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell, played for the Harlem Globetrotters prior to the NBA being integrated. Not and Bill so, Russell, but Wilt Chamberlain did. Okay, okay, okay. He signed out of college. He was, uh, when he, at the end of his junior year at Kansas, he was ready to go pro, but the NBA had a rule that said you couldn't go to the NBA until your class graduated. So it was Will, it was Abe Saperstein's biggest sign. He had this big ceremony in a wheelbarrow. He wheeled in silver dollars <laughs> and signed Will Chamberlain. And it, he played all over the world with him for a full year. And Abe, being a great marketing genius, played him at point guard. So he had seven foot one <laughs> Will Chamberlain, who wasn't nearly as bulked up as he was in his later years. And there's some incredible film footage of Wilt as a point guard dribbling, dribbling on the fast <laughs> break. Um, and he then, so then he went to the league, but he still played with the Globetrotters for 13 seasons during the summer. At the end of the NBA um, season, he would come play with the Globetrotters in Europe, and they always kept a uniform for him because they never knew when he would show up. They might be in Rome or, you know, London or somewhere, and Wilt would come walking in the door. And, of course, you know, Wilt was famous in his autobiographies for talking about his exploits with women, and he wrote very candidly about how the Globetrotters helped him achieve those, those marks. And as he put it, basketball was no more than the third most important thing in the minds of Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> So yeah, Will was a great um, a great sign and a great um, publicity thing for them. But yeah, so back to your original point, 1950 I think was one of the most important years in their history. It's the year they went to Europe for the first time and were treated like royalty. It's the year that Hollywood came calling and made the first of two Hollywood movies about the Globetrotters. It's the year that the NBA integrated, and the first NBA, the first player to sign an NBA contract was Sweetwater Clifton, who was the star center of the Globetrotters. Abe sold him to the Knicks. But so the, the one point, the Globetrotters that were, were at the height of their popularity, but on the other hand, in a way, it was the start of the downhill slide because Abe lost his monopoly. Now the best basketball team, best, best basketball players were going to the league. And, and those, those European trips, there's some amazing stories uh, in your book about uh, in 1951, I think it was, they drew more than 75,000 people to watch them in Berlin. They met with the Pope. <laughs> who himself, yeah, there's this great quote from the Pope in 1952. He met with them. He said, he, after watching them handle the ball, he said, quote, if I had not seen this with my own eyes, I would not have believed it could be done. <laughs> right. And everyone claimed they could see his foot tapping under his robe, you know, as they were playing, doing the magic circle to sweet Georgia Brown. Um, that 1951 game to me, in, it was in Berlin with Jesse Owens, who was his first appearance in Berlin since the 1936 Olympics. And there are so many 
great ironies in the Globetrotter story, it was the most people had ever seen a basketball game for many, many, many decades. It was finally broken a few years ago uh, in Detroit where they had the, uh, they had a game in the Lion Stadium that broke that record. But the reason they ended up in Berlin wasn't just happenstance. The U.S. State Department by that point was actively promoting the Globetrotters and basically became the Globetrotters' booking agent to counteract Soviet propaganda about racism. Because, you know, we're talking uh, 1952, the Civil Rights Movement hasn't even really started yet. Um, the U.S. is getting beaten up worldwide because of Jim Crow. And so the State Department started bringing the Globetrotters all over the world into places to to really counteract Soviet propaganda. So they brought them to Berlin because right across the Berlin Wall in East Berlin, they were having this international student worldwide conference with hundreds of thousands of young people. And so the State Department brought the Globetrotters to Berlin, brought Jesse O, who was kind of their announcer. Uh, it was this huge uh, event um, for Jesse Owens, he comes down out of they bring him in to the stadium on a helicopter, uh, runs around the stadium in his Olympic um, uniform. Uh, so it was a great event. Yeah, a lot of people don't don't remember these things, but the State Department was active in this. Not only the Globetrotters, Dizzy Gillespie, they sent on jazz tours around the world as a part of counteracting the propaganda of the Soviet Union. And there's the big event in 1959. The Globetrotters actually go and play in the Soviet Union. Right, right, right. That was where Wilt was there with them too. So they, uh, yeah, they show up. They meet Khrushchev in Red Square. He gets out of his limousine and rushes up to shake their hands. So they were, you know, and you're right. I mean, it wasn't just the Globetrotters. Uh, it was black musicians. And again, here's one of the ironies. They were treated like kings in Europe and in Rome and in Berlin. And when they get back home to, the, to America, I mean, literally at the very same time they were playing in Berlin, there were riots going on in Chicago because of blacks trying to integrate um, in suburbs of Chicago. And all during the 50s, they would come home from these world tours and they couldn't even buy a hamburger. They couldn't spend the night in a hotel unless it was a flea bag hotel on the, in the black section of town. So they were being used as propaganda overseas, but once they got back home, all of the publicity went away and they were just another bunch of, you know, uppity black guys once the ball game ended. So in the States in the 60s, when things really began to change uh, culturally, what role did the uh, Globetrotters play then? Well, again, it's another really interesting aspect to it. I, I think the most, I don't know, perplexing question, maybe problematic question that's trailed the Globetrotters from the very beginning is whether it's a minstrel show for white people. Right. And when I say from the very beginning, when they got started in the late 1920s, the owner of the Harlem Rins, Bob Douglas, in New York, viciously criticized them as being a minstrel show. He said, you know, this is step and fetch it in short pants that they're putting on, that they're, they're not really legitimate basketball players. They're, they're clowns putting on a show for white people. 
And that was part of the tension between the Globetrotters and the Wrens, because the Wrens did this ball handling stuff, but Abe Saberstein really kind of played up that the racial aspect of it. I mean, in the early 30s, he had his players, when they would do their gags, he had them shooting craps on the, on the gym floor and kind of playing up these racial stereotypes. So when the 60s hit and the civil rights movement by that point was going full throttle, there, was, there were a lot of people in the black community who criticized the Globetrotters as being Uncle Tom's. And they were really, in many ways, disowned by the black community in the 1960s because of this caricature of being Tom's and, you know, step and fetch it. So, so what, how, how were they able to shed that? Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a criticism that I've heard of them. I, I try to be aware of these things today. Um, so, so how were they able to do that? Because there, there was a change in ownership, right? In 1966, when Saperstein died, they were bought out by a media conglomerate, Metro Media. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it was already happening when Abe was there. Um, and really, I don't think that I don't think that the Globetrotters really recovered their reputation. Well, let me back up. They in the 1940s and 50s, and maybe even into the early 60s, that when the Globetrotters were still the best basketball team in the world, or one of the best basketball teams in the world, when Marcus Haynes and Goose Tatum were playing with them, when Wilt Chamberlain was playing with them, they were seen as heroes in the black community. I mean, those games in 48 and 49, when they beat the Lakers, it wasn't on as big a scale, but it was the same same kind of thing as when Joe Lewis beat Max Schmeling. I mean, the black community in Chicago was transported with joy when the Globetrotters beat the Lakers. But by the 60s, the middle 60s, by the height of the civil rights movement, you know, the the Globetrotters seemed like they were still playing the fool, really. And, you know, it did, it really got worse after Saperstein sold them. I mean, they were sold to different, they, they traded hands three or four times, and they got further and further away from being great basketball players, and they became more and more just kind of showmen. I mean, they had their own TV show. They had the cartoon show. The TV show was a variety show. You got these guys dressed up like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and, you know, acting out these goofy kind of scenes. And I think even some of the old-time ball players that I interviewed felt like, what does this have to do with the history of the Globetrotters where we're just being silly? I don't think it really changed until the 90s, frankly, that they got back kind of reconnected with the black community. And that comes along with the purchase of the team by Manny Jackson in 1993? Correct. Right. Because they had, I mean, my book is subtitled The Rise, Fall, and Return to Greatness of the Harlem Globetrotters. They had fallen really, really, really low by the late 80s to early 90s. They were basically, they were almost bankrupt. They were losing money. They were owned by the ice capades. They're wearing these little spandex suits, unitards. Um, they're t- the, you know, the popularity had gone way downhill. They're no longer on TV. And they were playing a kind of basketball that wasn't, I mean, they were always known as great basketball players, who could put on a show. Now it had really just become a show. Yeah, I can remember as a child in the 70s seeing them on Scooby-Doo. 
Right. Yeah, yeah, me <laughs> and too. Gilligan's Island. I mean, they run all kinds of stuff. So, so where are they today? I think it's going to be a very interesting few years for them. Um, they just were bought again. They changed, uh, Manny Jackson sold the team to a Disney um, investment arm probably eight, nine years ago. And then they just sold them to a company that owns like theme parks. And so on one hand, they're still really popular. It's still great family entertainment. And what you said from the very beginning, I mean, you go to a Globetrotter game and you see three generations, you know, you'll see the grandparents and the parents and the grandkids all there. Um, the last time I saw them, I felt like it was, it was kind of a pendulum between good basketball and showmanship and which way does that pendulum swing. And the last time I saw them was a couple of years ago. It seemed like it was swinging more toward the showmanship and away from great basketball. So, you know, we'll see what happens with the new owners and, the, you know, just the, the coaches and, and how they, where they go with, with the show. And they've started doing demos against college teams again, correct? Well, that stopped. I mean, that's one of the things Manny Jackson, when Manny bought the team, he was kind of, he was embarrassed by them. I mean, he told, that told this great story of taking his daughters to see him play in Boston. And they kind of turned to him and said, you used to play with these guys? Cause oh. they had heard these great exploits of their father, the renowned basketball player. And they were just kind of a joke. So one of the things he said is we're going to recruit, we're going to get back to great basketball. And so he started recruiting really good players. And there are a lot of great basketball players who can't stick in the NBA or, you know, maybe they could play in Europe, but they could go to Globetrotters and get to travel all over the world and, and get to be a Harlem Globetrotter. So he started really up in the recruitment of good players. And then one of the things he wanted to do was get back to one of the, things in their heyday was they used to play college teams, college all-stars um, back in the 50s and even early 60s. So he started, there was a period of time where he started challenging um, college teams. And then the, the NCAA kind of changed the rules on who they could play, uh, who college teams could play. So they stopped doing that like, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. So so we, we've talked about Goose Tatum and, and Wilt Chamberlain. Who, who are some of the other great players in uh, Globetrotters history? I think the two best basketball players in their history were Marcus Haynes and Goose Tatum. Um, I mean, you can go way further back. Sort of the first real showman um, was Inman Jackson. He was the one that really started developing some of the tricks, which really they still do today, some of them. Um, back in, He was the first center, really, for the team. But I think probably the best pure basketball player was Marcus Haynes. Um, Marcus was point guard. Um, he just died like a year ago, year and a half ago. And, um, you know, he was, you can talk to really anybody in professional sports in basketball who knew about Marcus Haynes, and they will say that Marcus may have been the best ball handler of all time. I mean, we see, you know, what, um, Stephon Curry does today with the ball, but Marcus was an unbelievable ball handler, and he was the f he was really the forerunner of Curly Neal, who was a great ball handler in the era of Metalark Lemon and Curly, Curly Neal. But the one difference was when when um, Marcus was the ball handler, 
it wasn't a stage thing. You know, it wasn't like they would say, okay, we're going to give Curly two minutes to let him go sliding all over the floor, dribbling the ball. Marcus would just say, come get it. <laughs> and, and he would just, <laughs> you know, keep, play keep away himself uh, from the other team. There's great film footage of the second game against the Lakers um, on this newsreel footage where they, they put on the show and Marcus is just like taunting the Lakers players with the ball and they can't get it. And there's one time he dribbled out an entire quarter. They were playing down in Mexico and they were at altitude <laughs> and everybody was like ready to pass out. And Marcus just said, just give me the ball. And he just dribbled out the quarter just so the other guys could rest up. So I think he, various people I talked to said, the NBA would have gobbled him up in a heartbeat if they, you know, if they could have had him. And he was probably the best, just pure basketball player that ever played for. Him. Ben Green, thank you so much for for your time today. This was a great interview. Thanks, Ben. All right, all right, appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today on the Road to Now. Our program is produced by Bob Crawford, Ben Sawyer, and Ian Scotta. Edited by Bob Crawford and Ian Scotta. Paul DeFiglia provides our music. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and rate us on iTunes. For more information about this or any other episode, please visit theroadtonow.com. For Dr. Ben Sawyer, this is Bob Crawford. Take care.